Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to my Good Nanny Radio, MGN Radio, the best show on Blog Talk Radio for family information and entertainment. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, and welcome to MGN Radio. I'm your host, Miss Tassi, and today is Wednesday, March 23rd. 2016 and we're super excited about today's show i'm so excited thank you to everybody who tuned in yesterday as we chatted with the author um verlin talton and as you know if you listen to the show she has an amazing book and it just got picked up by a publisher so check the broadcast the podcast rewind and make sure you listen in okay for today's guest And thank you to everyone who's on the phone line, um, who's sending questions ahead of time for our special guest, Lisa Price, the founder of Carol's Daughter. And Ms. Lisa Price, if you're on, please press 1 so that we will know you're in the chat room and we'll be able to connect you. So before we get that, again, our hearts and prayers go out to the people of Belgium. Um, Yesterday we mentioned it on the show, and, you know, our show is heard, for those who might not know, MGM Radio is the number one show on Blog Talk Radio for family information and entertainment. And we're heard all over the world. And actually yesterday we mentioned, you know, our hearts go out to the people of Belgium. And we got an email from Andres Thomas. And and sorry if I'm mispronouncing her first name, but she, you know she's an American, Belgium, born in Belgium, and you know she has moved to the America. And she heard our show and sent an email just saying thank you. So we appreciate all our listeners, and again thank you so much. Well, as you know, Lisa Price is going to be at our Dare to Aspire conference in Atlanta. I hope you've got your tickets. Um, We've actually sold out of all our vendor booths. It's going to be announced later. However, we still have tickets. Um, It's April 8th and 9th. It's in Atlanta. And the website is D, the number two, aspire.com. And this is our sixth, can you believe it, our sixth conference. And, again, we support women and moms to start and grow a small business. And that's why I thank God that Lisa Price is going to be our keynote speaker. So without further ado, let me introduce, give her her fabulous MGN introduction, and then we'll start chatting with Ms. Price. So from the humble beginnings in her Brooklyn kitchen, founder of Carol's Daughter, Lisa Price transformed her beloved hobby of mixing up fragrances and creams at home into a multi-million dollar beauty empire. With $100 in cash, her own kitchen, and the simple notion that people should follow their hearts, Lisa started building the, the, the collection that will become a beauty revolution. And I know, I have two girls, I remember going to Macy's and, like, looking for Carol's daughter and buying Carol's daughter. So, you know, it's really a beauty revolution. And, you know, she began selling, and in August of 1994, um, she officially established Carol's daughter, named after her mom. And, you know, it's in Sephora. It's um, She's now on HSN. Um, although she sold the company to L'Oreal, she still remains devoted to the brand, 
going into the office every day and continues to play an integral role in the product development process. She's done it. You know, she's a pioneer in the beauty industry. She's worked with celebrities like Mary J. Blige, Jay-Z, Jada Pickett-Smith, Tommy Mottola, the list goes on. Um, and so without further ado, let me introduce my special guest, Miss Lisa Price. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Is that you? Yes, it is. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being a guest on MGM Radio. Thank you. No problem. Honored to be here. Oh, wow. You know, Lisa, we, if you're, like I tell all our listeners, you know, everybody knows about your company, but I want to hear it from you. Like, tell us about yourself and just the initial idea of Carol's Daughter. Well, Carol's Daughter really started as a hobby. Um, I was making my own fragrances and then from there started to play around in my kitchen to make moisturizers. I actually started out with body products first. And my mother encouraged me to sell at a church flea market. And this May, that would be 23 years ago, that I sold at um my first flea market and actually received money for product as opposed to just giving it to friends and family. And, you know, that was the beginning of me selling in different parts of Brooklyn. I would go out on Saturdays or Saturdays and Sundays and sell in the Clinton Hill, Fort Greene neighborhood. And I began to build this clientele. Um, And when I went back to work in the fall, I had people that would come by my home and shop on Saturdays, and that was the beginning of the brand. Wow, that is amazing. So when was it like you had, like Oprah used to say, your aha moment, like you knew this was going to be a a million or just a successful business? Like when did you have that moment? Well, I I have to say that over a 23-year span, there were many aha moments um, because when you start (laughs) selling at a flea market and cooking things on the top of your stove, there's many, many levels of success uh, that that follow after that. You know, the, the first time that you hold an event at your home and it's successful that you know that that's a level of success and the first time that you open up a store outside of your home or the first time that you hire an employee there's so many different moments um but one of them was when i actually realized that i had a business and i just happened to be watching oprah and her show was about people who had started businesses and what it takes to know that you can be an entrepreneur and you can run a business. And they had, you know, like this little checklist. And as they were stating the items on the checklist, I realized that I was saying yes to those things. And up until watching that show, I thought that what I was doing was a hobby And it was something that was occupying my time until my next gig, and I was making a little bit of money from it, but I really didn't think of it as a business. And when I realized that I was answering yes to all of these things on the checklist, that's when I realized, oh, wait a minute, maybe this could actually be a business. Maybe this could be my job one day. Maybe I could earn a living at this somehow. And that was one of the first 
aha moments in realizing that this thing that I had called a hobby was actually a business. Wow, that is an amazing story. And so many women, you know, it's like, is it a hobby? Is it a business? So to hear you say that, you know, you saw this checklist and then that's really what propelled you, I know that's going to, you know, encourage other women that they can really do it as well. Um, Now, when you started out, as you know, as a small business owner, it's so hard to market your brand. Um, to get TV commercials are so expensive. And, like, how did you, when you first started, if you can think back 23 years ago, and congratulations on 23 years, but if you can think back, like, what are some things, some practical things that you did to market your brand? Well, 23 years ago, we did not have social media. So that that's a tool that we have today that does make some of this a lot easier. 23 years ago, mm-hmm. it was strictly word of mouth. It was very important to be as patient and kind and accommodating as I could possibly be with any of my customers um, because they would come and shop with me in my home, and if they were satisfied with what they received, it meant they would come back or it meant they would tell a friend, oh, you have to go to this place in Brooklyn. I shop with this woman. She makes things, you know, she's great. Um But if they don't have a pleasant experience, then they're not going to do that. Or if they're not satisfied with the quality of the product, they're not going to do that. So word of mouth was critical to me, and it was the only way that I could succeed. Uh, My husband used to talk about the business growing because of the sister girl network, because one friend would tell another friend, and then she would tell a friend. And uh, that's how... We did business. Um, I also gave away a lot of product. I would, you know, if I heard that, you know, someone was going to be in town or working on a particular production, because I used to work in television production, so sometimes makeup artist friends of mine or hairstylist friends of mine would be working on a set, and they'd be working with someone, and they would call and ask if they could get some product, um, I would send it, because back then... If you had someone on a production who, you know, let's say had locks, it wasn't likely that the kit that was provided to that uh, trailer for hair and makeup, it wasn't likely that they had products in there for locks because locks at the time were very niche. Um, You know, it wasn't a popular thing. And if someone was making products, they were getting it like at the salon where they were getting their hair done. It wasn't available in mainstream distribution, and people didn't really shop online. So it wasn't like you could just go to Amazon and buy something for the person's locks. So they would reach out to me, and they would usually offer to pay for it, and I would just say, oh, no, no, let me just send it, and um, if you don't mind, I'll send a little extra, you know, for the actor or actress and, you know, let them use it, and you just give me feedback and let me know if they like it and so forth. And that always worked out in my favor because they didn't have to take a chance on purchasing something they had never used before. They were grateful to get something for free. They didn't have to expense it. The artist would get something that they could use, and then if they liked it, they came back to me. If they liked it, they might talk about it in a magazine. You know, So it was really a lot of you know, goodwill, word of mouth, and giving things away for free. 
that that I use to market Carol's Daughter. Wow, you heard it live. We're chatting live with Lisa Price, the founder of Carol's Daughter. And like I always tell people, get a pen and piece of paper because the stuff and the nuggets you're going to get are priceless, especially if you're starting a small business or even if you have a business and you want to grow. You heard Lisa, a lot of entrepreneurs now, you know, we have social media. Everybody is against giving away stuff for free, but it's so important. You have to to build your brand. Now, in terms of um, selecting a manufacturer for your products, I know a lot of times at our conferences in the past, a lot of women are saying, I don't know where to start. How do I select a manufacturer? I'm doing it from my home, you know, but I want to grow bigger. So how did you select a manufacturer for your product, and what process, um, you know, did you use to select the manufacturer? Any tips or advice that you can share? Well, I didn't select a manufacturer for a very, very long time. So I produced out of my home as long as I could, and then I moved into a warehouse, and we produced out of that warehouse, and we just had a larger kitchen, you know, a more Mm -hmm. industrial-type kitchen and more space, but still very handmade. Um, And then at one point we were able to get a label, a, a machine that would apply labels to bottles. Uh, that was about as far as we were able to get with <laughs> automation within that warehouse. So it was a lot of people working to make the products and two different shifts, sometimes three, to get the production done. So by the time wow. I went to a contract manufacturer, I actually had enough business to qualify for those minimum orders, um, and that that's yeah. the, the difficult part. You know, you have to have enough business in order to say, okay, I want to purchase 5000 of this item, 3000 of this item, 10000 of this item, because a lot of contract manufacturers, that's where the minimums are. There are yeah. some contract manufacturers that have lower minimums, Um, There's different surcharges that would apply to that. So there's a lot of research that has to be done. The initial contractors that we worked with were recommended um, by someone who worked within the company that had dealt with these companies before. And that's typically how it is. You know, you, you have people on your staff that work in the beauty business. They've worked with contract manufacturers. They have affiliations with certain chemists, and they bring them to the table for review. And you basically check out the facility, um, you know, meet with the people, make sure that you and the chemist are speaking the same language, that they understand what it is that you want in your product and what you don't want in your product, and then making sure that they're able to deliver that. Um, And you go and you visit, and and you you look and see what the production looks like and how the runs are handled. Um, You know, it's, it's... it sounds funny, but it's somewhat similar to, you know, if you were trying to hire uh, a caterer for a wedding. You go to their restaurant, you sit down, and you eat their food. <laughs> and you go over your menu, and if the food tastes good, you know, you're happy. If you want to make sure that everybody is covered and, you know, hey, you can't use nuts because my cousin's allergic, you know, you go through yeah. all of those checklists and, you don't hire the caterer without eating their food. So you don't hire a manufacturer without trying out their product, checking their facility, making sure everything is clean, and seeing how they run their business. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, now, one of the things that, and if you're on the phone lines, we are going to take some questions for Lisa, one or two, um, but I want to get through some of, of the questions somebody had in the chat room. They said, could you please expand on your background? Um, I know you were in a cosmic. You mentioned that you were in the television industry. Can you share anything um, about else about your background that maybe helped you, you know, with this business? I before working in uh television and film I was an executive assistant at New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation so basically a secretary uh before that I worked at the United Nations as a messenger um I I've had many different jobs my longest running uh job and and career was in television production I did script coordinating um, and I also did production coordinating, and I worked on shows that people have heard of, and I worked on tons of things that no one has ever heard of, uh, because that's how television is, you know, commercials, small productions, pilots that never get picked up. Um, but I did work steady because that was what I wanted to do. That's what I thought my career was going to be. I stumbled into it, and then once I was in it, I loved it. I loved that it was creative, but creative from the behind-the-scenes perspective. And television production is, is a type of career that is somewhat autonomous. You do work with supervisors and bosses and managers and so forth, but a lot of how long you work and where you work next is dependent on what you bring to the table. And there really isn't a lot of time for micromanaging. Everybody is, is, you know, like you're assigned to your lane and you stay in your lane and get your job done. And as long as each person is doing what they're supposed to do, the production flows forward. And there just isn't time for extra politics and silliness and, you know, it, it, it... there's too much work to be done in a short space of time, and you're focused on the end product. And that's kind of what I loved about it. So it was it was hard work, but it was hard work without the extra uh, office politics. You just got the job done. Um, wow. And I really yeah. thought that that was going to be my career. I didn't know that I would end up becoming an entrepreneur but doing that was good training for being an entrepreneur because I had to get accustomed to working without the safety net of security because television production was not a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday type of gig. You know, you work someplace for a day and then you work someplace else for a month and then you work someplace else for 2 years. It was very sporadic. Um so when I became an entrepreneur and had to get accustomed to that insecurity. There there really wasn't a learning curve there because I had already been through it. And I worked Saturdays, Sundays, holidays, long hours, yeah. sleepless nights. And those people listening now who are entrepreneurs, you know <laughs> what that means. <laughs> that's our lives. Yep. <laughs> um, so it, was, it yep. was good training. I didn't realize at the time that that's what I was being trained for, but it was very good training. 
Wow, I love it, love it, love it. Um, we are live with Lisa Price for those who are just joining or might be checking the replay. Um, one of the things, and I see a question. Okay, you know what, let me take a question because I see a couple of questions. Let me take one question, then we'll get back to our interview. Okay, 864, you are live with Miss Lisa Price. Hello? Uh, hello, I am so excited yes. about your guest. Uh, my first question is, how did you receive uh, financial backing? What did you do in order to get financial backing for your company? And I was amazed by the personal backing that you got from your husband. This is rare. Could you tell us uh, about his involvement in the company also? Sure. Um <laughs> It's kind of sad to say that it's rare to get backing from your spouse. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Well, uh, Gordon, even before Carol's daughter was the business that, that it has become, Gordon, who's my husband of almost 25 years, he was always that supportive cheerleader type person um, because that's just who he is by nature and how both of us are in our relationship. We encourage each other when um, the other person is working on something that they want to do. Um, And so he was the person who was testing things out, you know, that I was making. And when I needed to find – coconut oil in five gallon drums and I you know and I found it at a place in New Jersey but because I only need one five gallon drum they wouldn't deliver you know he was the person who drove to Jersey and went and got it for me um so Gordon because of Gordon there is a Carol's daughter today even though Gordon was not a person who was heavily involved in the business aspect of things you know my husband is not a corporate person. He's not a come into the office and sit down at a desk person. He's not a marketer. He works in television production on the crew side of things as an audio technician. And, you know, this this type of world is not his world, and he's also not a beauty junkie, so he's not helping with product development, (laughs) but was always supportive of what I had to do and whenever he could step in and do something for me to make things easier or better, he did. As far as money goes, um, Gordon was uh, the recipient of a lawsuit settlement at about the same time that we needed to put down a down payment on our first store. And his portion of the settlement was about $5,000, and he put the $5,000 towards the uh, down payment to get that first store. Um, wow. But, you know, at the time, that was that was what we had been working towards. You know, he, he worked his job outside of the house. I worked my job inside the house. And when he had time off from his job, he was helping me with mine. You know, so even though it's not a situation where, you know, today we're both walking into the office together. We built Carol's Daughter together, and we built it as something in order to help us take care of ourselves and our children. So it's always been our thing, even though I'm the person who's been in the forefront more than he has. And, um, you know, so him investing 
in our store never seemed like um, an anomaly, you know, like, oh, wow, I can't believe he put that money in. You know, I, I think in his mind and somewhat in, in my mind as well, that was our money. Um, and that's how we've always operated. Everything that comes into our home is ours, and it's how we live. And and we live together and we raise our children together, so what comes into our home is ours, and we decide how it's going to be spent and, and what's going to happen with it. And then as far as getting outside money, um, that was something that was always a process. Um, I started out in the very beginning with small loans uh, from family members, and I, and I mean like small, like $500 from this person, $1,000 from that person. I think the largest family loan that I received was a $5,000 loan, and I always paid them back with interest as quickly as possible because I, you know, I never wanted to be at the family reunion across from the person that I never paid back. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, always paid them first before I paid anybody else. And, uh, I guess about nine years into the business, I was able to get my first ever bank loan. Um, so I had two different um, small bank loans and then later was able to put money into the company by having people invest in it. Um, but that was about 11 years in before someone invested in the company. Wow, love it, love it. I hope everybody is is. I love your answer, but yeah, just to piggyback, because somebody else in the chat room was like, yeah, you know, um, it's hard to, to have family and friends support your business when you're a small business owner. So I love the fact that your husband really stepped in. So yeah, Gordon. Now, in terms of social media, and I know you uh-huh. touched, you said 23 years ago, but today companies are starting with social media. So I wanted to ask you. What's your favorite platform? Uh-huh. And you know, do you think it's plausible or feasible for a, a small business to actually start and grow, you know, their brand strictly on social media? My favorite platform is Instagram. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that social media makes certain things easier to do than they than you know was possible before. Like if you had a company and you have different products, you typically had to have some type of paper in order to promote yourself. You had to have a business card. You had to have a catalog. So in order to have a catalog, you have to have photography. If you're not a photographer, then you're probably paying someone to take the pictures for you. And there are a lot of people who will take a physical piece of paper and will never shop with you. So producing yeah. catalogs is very, very expensive. Even if they're only four pages, it can get really, really expensive. And then we used to have to mail them because we didn't have the ability to email. We didn't have the ability to put a post on Facebook and tell someone to click the link to take you to the page on Etsy or to take you to the website. When I created my website, my website cost thousands of dollars to create it in the very beginning when it didn't have the bells and whistles that websites have today. Now you can work with, 
you know, other companies to sort of host your page within their site and pay a monthly fee. Um, there's there's so many ways to get it done for less today. Um, so it's definitely an asset and a tool that you have to use, but it's not the only one. So having social media doesn't mean that you don't have to know marketing. It doesn't mean that you don't have to know how to be a storyteller because it requires all of that. What is going to make someone's thumb stop? You know, when we're when we're all on our phones, because most of us are on our phones when we're on social media, very few of us are sitting yeah. at the computer. So our thumbs are scrolling through. And what is that image, that video, or those words that are going to make that thumb stop? You still have to know how to do that in order to make the tool work for you effectively. And the playing field is much more competitive. You know, every time... Uh, a new platform comes out, you kind of have to jump on it and, you know, get get into it early to make it work for you. And then once everybody is on it or someone buys it, uh, then you have to pay to play. And, it you know, it becomes more complicated. Uh, but it's it's definitely the wave of the future, and it's how we have to think. We have to think of you know what what are we going to put on YouTube in order to broadcast who we are and how do we craft that message i i know of people who look at the various channels and they say okay facebook is like my customer service place that's where i'm going to go and say hey did you know that today on my website you can do x you know, and that YouTube is the behind the scenes of their brand where they get to show you how things are made and, you know, what the day looks like, you know, and now you have Periscope with the live streaming. Lots of companies mm-hmm. will show people behind the scenes on Periscope. So, you know, I think you have to get on the platforms, play on them, look at them, look at what other people do on them, look at what your competitors do, and then see how you fit into it. But it has to have a strategy. It's not just, oh, I have an Instagram account. I'm ready. It's more than that. (laughs) It's more than that. We are chatting live with Ms. Lisa Price, the founder of Carol's Daughter, and um, we are. Time always is always flying. And like I said earlier, she's our keynote speaker at Dare to Aspire Conference in Atlanta, April eighth and ninth. Um, now, Lisa, what about um, just a lot of people in the chat room are chatting about HSN, Home Shopping Network. And, you know, we have Shark Tank, we have HSN, we have QVC, like different avenues to get the word out about your product. How did you get on HSN, and how did it help you from a business perspective in terms of, you know, the Carol's Daughter brand? Well, I was able to join HSN through Sephora. Um, I was in Sephora stores back in 2008, and... Sephora and HSN decided to form a partnership, and there were a series of shows on HSN that were billed as Sephora Presents. And during those Sephora Presents shows, there were different brands that were highlighted that were available in Sephora stores that were being featured on HSN. And I think that partnership went for about a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. And at the end of the partnership, the brands that stayed on were Carol's Daughter and there was another brand called Ula Henriksen. 
Um, so that's how I got onto HSN. It was it was through Sephora, and then for the business, it's it's pretty fantastic because it's a way of a, a different level of marketing. You know, when you're when you're on HSN and you let your community know that you're going to be on HSN, they can tune in and watch and learn more about the brand than they knew before. So you can reinforce your existing audience and maybe teach them things about the product that they didn't know about before because I'm not usually on television talking about it. So they're reading about it online, but now they have the opportunity to watch and to listen and to get the word straight from me. And then being on HSN over the years and being a part of different programs and uh, different specials that they have, it broadened my audience as well. So now there are more people who have never heard of me that purchase from me because of the exposure that I've been able to get here. And it's it's selling, but in a large way it's marketing because I'm able to tell my story and tell the story of the products and tell you how to use them in a way that I can't do anyplace else. I love it. Now, a question came up a lot of times when people start businesses, especially women and sometimes minority women, they don't want to be the face of their brand because, you know, the world is so different. Some people buy from you because of how you look, or some people will say, oh, you know, she has natural hair. What is she doing selling um, a product for straight hair people? You know, like what you're the face of for a long time, you have been the face of Carol's daughter. Like, what do you advise people in terms of showing that they are the owner of their brand and being the face of their brand? I, I, you know, I guess that would be a personal decision. And um, I, I have been the face of my brand, but until HSN and until the explosion of social media, I don't know how many people really did know that um, because I have had Spokes Beauties featured in ads and Mm -hmm. I wasn't in the ad Um, and not because I didn't think that I was good enough. It's just I had the opportunity to have Jada Pinkett Smith be a Spokes Beauty. Mm -hmm. More people know her than they know me. So that makes them look at the ad and say, oh, what's Jada doing? You know, And I know that there were a lot of people who thought that Carol's daughter was, was Jada's brand and they didn't know yeah. who I was, but I didn't care. <laughs> you know? I, at the end of the day, I know who I am, you know, um, so I'm not really concerned that you don't know who I am. Um, I'm trying to get eyeballs on the brand and eyeballs on the product. So I, I think each individual founder has to make that decision for themselves Um, Some people who are founders are extremely creative, and they may be extremely private, and they don't want the pressure of having to be the face, Um, and and that's okay. You, You just have to figure out what the marketing is and does the marketing work with you as the face, or does it work with you in the background and other people in the forefront, or does it work when you share the limelight with different people? Um, I don't think there's one right or wrong answer. And at some point, 
somebody else has to be the face of Carol's daughter because, you know, I might be 82 years old and it might not be appropriate <laughs> for me to be on HSN talking about curls popping. You know, it's, it's just, <laughs> it might not be the right thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. This is such good advice. I know everybody on the phone lines. Again, if you have a question, you can press one. Um, but you have such because so many, you know, now with social media, they're just I call them fake entrepreneurs. But I always say Lisa is a true boss because you've done it. You've built a million dollar, multi million dollar beauty empire, um, and I just love your practical advice and knowledge. Um, a lot of times, small businesses struggle with getting their brand in, you know, the big departments, Sephora, Macy's. You've accomplished both. Can you share any struggles or business tips that you had um, when you got in Sephora or Macy's and any advice or things you did to overcome those obstacles? When I was able to sell in Sephora, there was so much that I did not know. And we made so many mistakes, and there were so many things that were a mess. And I just think that that's a part of business. I I think that as consumers and people on the outside, we look and we think that everybody has everything figured out, and if somebody's brand is in a store, that person is wealthy, that person knows exactly what they're doing, they're not making any mistakes. And if we're aspiring to do that, we look at it and we think, well, that other person is is perfect or that company is perfect and I'm a mess. And it's that's just not the case at all. No one knows what they're doing all the time. No one is perfect. Everyone makes mistakes, including big, large corporate brands, because it's just life and it's just the nature of business. You don't try to make the mistakes. You go in with the best of intentions and you go into the process to do everything correctly. But things happen and and you know there are there are errors and there are concerns or you couldn't anticipate something happening in the marketplace. So I think the the best thing to do is to not look at it as if being there is what success is. Success within your business usually boils down to profit. There's a there's a part of it of course where you have to enjoy what it is that you're doing. And 9 times out of 10 if someone's in business doing something, they're passionate about what they do. So the personal part of the success, the passion for what you're doing, the energy that you bring into the brand, you're responsible for that. The other part of success is profit because you need to have money to run your business. So when you look at retailers, and not just Sephora, not just Macy's, any retailer, even if it's a boutique that's in your neighborhood run by a friend of yours and they want to carry your line, Every situation, you have to look at it as, is this going to be profitable? Does it make sense? Is it the right partner for me? When you go into a a retail situation, they're not your savior 
they're not the person that's going to make you rich. It's not as if because Sephora says, yes, we want to take you into our stores, that all of a sudden checks just start running, you know, in your direction and money just follows you. That person is now your business partner, and the two of you have to be partners together to grow your business within their store. They're giving you real estate, and they're giving you a platform, and you still have to know how to make that platform work. That's your responsibility when you come into the situation. And a lot of times entrepreneurs look at it as, well, if I build it, they'll come. All I have to do is get my stuff into a store and then everyone's going to buy it because they're going to be able to see it. And I'm here to tell you it does not work like that, not at all. (laughs) The marketing does not stop. The money does not – the spending of money does not stop to get the word out as to where you are. And you have to work at it together and you have to work at it even harder when you're in a retail situation because the stakes are higher. Very true, very true. We have a question on the phone line, 404. I'm going to connect you. Um, Hey, you're live with Miss Lisa Price. Thank you for listening. Hi. 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 Hi, this is Andra Hall, owner of Kimmy Kate. How are you doing? Great interview, by the way. I love Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Huge fan. Hey, I do have a question for you. Um, when and how did you make the decision to sell your company? And you mean that as in me personally, not in a general sense? Yes. Okay. So for let Ka- go. for well, no, I haven't. I haven't let it go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was an acquisition, but I'm still here. Oh, um, okay. But. The the decision for me to to sell along with my investors is just the path that the company was on. I took on equity partners, so people who invested in my company invested with the hopes that one day we would sell to another entity or another company, and all of us would then be able to share in those profits. So that exit strategy had always been on the table for me for the last seven, eight years of the company's existence. Because the only other alternative would have been for me to have found (laughs) money somewhere where I could pay all of these investors back, Um, and that wasn't likely that I would just find tens of millions of dollars somewhere. So my goal was in this exit strategy to find the best company that I felt would be able to carry on the legacy of Carol's daughter, to understand what it was that I had built, to have respect for what I had built, and be able to be the right shepherd, uh, if you will, for the brand. And I did have a couple of companies on my list, and one of those companies was L'Oreal. Um, and they, they at one point they were my second choice, and then after more research they became my first choice. And I spent a good 18 to 24 months working to put us in the position where that could be a reality. Because for me, that was the way that the story should be told. 
a company that was built in my kitchen 23 years ago with an investment of $100 sells to the largest beauty company in the world um, and, wow. and a company that I had a lot of respect for um, and that I felt understood what it was that I had built. And it was also a great story for my investors. Um, we could have sold to someone else, um, but it might not have been as great a scenario. Um, it might not have been a scenario where I'm still involved. So I really wanted the best scenario for my brand, the best scenario for me and my family, for my investors, and the best story to tell. Great question. Yay, shout out to Cami Cakes um, in Atlanta. She she has a really fabulous um, cupcake shop. Um, Lisa, you know, a lot of people, and I'm glad she asked the question because in the chat room a lot of people were asking that. You still, just before we move on to the next question, but you still have ownership in Carol's Daughter, correct? I do not have ownership in Carol's Daughter because when you – have another company acquire your brand, you do sell it. But I have voice in Carol's Order. So ownership in the sense of percentages and dollars and so forth, no, I don't have that. But ownership as in responsibility, and I birthed this baby, and that's my child, yes, <laughs> I have that ownership. Um, <laughs> okay. I, you know, I'm someone who goes to work every day. I have the same office that I had before. Uh, I have the same responsibilities that I had before. I'm still the person who's on HSN. I'm the person who goes out and does events in stores. I record videos for the brand. I develop products. I am in meetings. <laughs> you know, I still do the work um, that I did prior to the acquisition. I still do that work and then some today because now I'm also a part of this large corporation that does other things in the world other than just Carol's daughter. So I have my responsibility to Carol's daughter, and then I have my responsibility as an executive of L'Oreal. Um, so, yeah, it 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 is uh, a different scenario in that I don't own the company um, the way that, that I once did, um, but in having investors, equity partners in the company, that that was what I needed to do. Um, still have the voice, the influence. I'm still guiding it. I'm still developing for it. Um, it I, I still am Carol's daughter. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can take that away, yes. And, and you know, your brand, um, like you said, you're still involved. You, I saw you on HSN. Um, you're still kind of the face in terms of, you know, the Carol Daughters brand. Mm -hmm. Speaking of television, speaking of television, and we have only a few minutes left, Lisa, but speaking of television, many business owners dream. They'll say dream to get on Oprah. You mm -hmm. on Oprah, and then she did a follow-up show. Can you mm -hmm. share first, how did you get selected <laughs> for business owners? How did you get selected and what the experience was like and what did it do for, you know, the Carol's Daughter brand? I was selected to be on Oprah originally in 2002 uh, in a pretty uh, random way, actually. Uh, there was a woman named Jackie Taylor that I met at a party um, B. Smith was having a party for advertisers 
at the time that she was starting a magazine uh, venture. And I had been a guest on B. Smith's cable show when she had a cable television show. And at this party, she wanted advertisers to experience live the types of features that would be in magazines. So I was at a party making bath salts and making milk baths in the middle of the party for the guests, along with other people doing other kinds of crafts. And Jackie Taylor was an associate producer on The View, and she just happened to be at that party. And then Jackie booked me to do The View when The View had first started. Fast forward three years later, Jackie is in Chicago interviewing for a position on Oprah. She was out to lunch with other producers, and the producers were talking about the shows that they were working on. And one of them was about moms who had started businesses at home and became millionaires or had businesses that were generating millions of dollars in sales, but businesses that started in their homes. So Jackie said, well, have you spoken to Carol's daughter? And that was how they heard about me and reached out to me. And I did a series of interviews over the phone and then got the confirmation that I would be featured on the show. Awesome. Awesome. I love stories like that. How important do you think, you know, it is about who you know in getting some of these, you know, deals, being on TV? Um, Obviously, you had a great product, but Jackie was instrumental in getting you on the show. Do you think that's still very important, your network? and your connections? Well, network network and connections are important, but what was most important about Jackie is I was just being me, and I was doing Mm. what I do because I didn't know who Jackie was. I didn't know Jackie was at that party. I went to that party Ah. for B, and I was there making product and being attentive to the audience that was there, and she witnessed that and said, this could be a cool feature on The View. So when she reached out to me to do The View, that's how I found out that she had been at the party because she said, I saw you at B. Smith's party. So then when I did The View, I went to The View. I went there, you know, in a professional manner, even though I was terrified of going on air. I was I was so nervous. I wanted to leave. You know, I didn't leave. I did what I was supposed to do. Um, and I never saw Jackie again after that. I, I did not see Jackie again. I did The View in, like, 99, 2000 something like that, Mm -hmm. and I didn't see Jackie again until 2014 when she was working on Queen Latifah. That was the next time that I saw her. But she, you know, whatever it was about me and our encounter stuck with her, and then she, you know, mentioned me for Oprah. I didn't realize that after that interview she actually worked on Oprah for the rest of the, the seasons of the show, and then she went to work at Uh, at the network as well, um, because we hadn't really been in touch. But I constantly told that story, and I always talked about how grateful I was to Jackie for having that conversation and for mentioning my name to those people. Um, So, yes, network and connections are important, but it's also important for you to be authentic and to be who you are and to show up and be you and make 
an impact on people. You know, when when you're just being yourself and you're you're living your your passion and you're doing what you're supposed to do, it makes an impact on people. And somehow I made an impact on Jackie and that's how things happen. And then even getting on Queen Latifah was because Jackie remembered me and she reached out and said, this is where I'm working now and I want you to do this show. And that that was something that I wanted to do because I love Queen um, and <laughs> Jada was uh, executive producer of the show. And I didn't want it to be me sending an email to Jada saying, hi, do you think you could get me on the show? Because she has 40,000 <laughs> other things that she's doing, you know. I didn't want yeah, it to be yeah. like that. And I was grateful that it happened organically and that organically. I was able to reconnect mm-hmm. with Jackie. Yes. Awesome, awesome. Now, what is your vision, you know, when you think of Carol's daughter and even yourself, you know, now you're an executive with L'Oreal. Um, what what do you see in the future for yourself and for Carol's daughter? Carol's daughter, I believe, um, because of the work that, that I've been able to do and how it's been positioned, is going to be exactly what I wanted it to be. I wanted my great-great-grandchildren to be able to go to a store and pick up a product and say to somebody, oh, yeah, my great-great-grandmother founded that because I still wanted it to be around. I didn't want it to be a story that someone told. Oh, you know, back in, in the 1990s, there was this company in Brooklyn, and this woman started it, and she did all these great things, but nobody can see the product anymore. Um, so one of the dreams that I have for uh, my company, I believe, is solidified, um, you know, with the, the yeah. L'Oreal acquisition. It's, it's not going to go anywhere. It, it, will, it will be here, and it will be able to be that living legacy, um, have its history but also have its future. And for myself, I'm not sure what my next chapter is because right now I'm still heavily involved in the present and what I'm doing. Um, but I don't believe in closing windows or doors, and I keep my heart open and and my eyes open, and I look forward to whatever that next thing is. Um, but for right now, I, I I like taking care of my first child, <laughs> my company. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Thanks, you know, thank you so much, Lisa. This this question keeps popping up in the chat room. Um, I know we're out of time, but they want to know how did you meet Jada Pickett Smith? Because she, you know, I learned about Carol's daughter. I think it was from Jada Jada Pickett Smith years ago. Like, how mm-hmm. did you meet her? and get her to be involved in your brand? Well, I, I actually didn't meet Jada until she was uh, becoming an investor in the brand. We didn't meet face-to-face until then. Mm. But Jada was turned on to Carol's daughter by Jazzy Jeff. Oh, so some, wow. somehow, <laughs> and I never met Jazzy Jeff either. I, I have not met him yet to this day. Um, but we, wow. we used to have a... Um, a customer service uh, service that took over at night. So Carol's daughter was, you know, in my home, and, and I had someone who worked for me who could answer the phone during the day. But then she went home at 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. So when she went home, the calls would switch over to these women who had a call center in Arizona. 
and they would take calls from 5, 6 o'clock in the evening to about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they would fax over any orders or questions that came in over the phone overnight. So we would get these orders for someone in Philadelphia who's, who they, they wrote down his name as Jeff Towns when it was actually Jeff, um, so, but they spelled it J-E-S-S. So I just thought there was this woman in Philadelphia who was just ordering a lot of stuff. And then I found <laughs> out later that that was actually Jeff Towns, and he had introduced Jada to the brand. And Jada started to buy oh. things for herself, and she would get things for gifts. And um, Willow and Jaden used a lot of the hair products in their hair when they were little guys. Um, yeah. And Jada would request things through her um, assistant, a couple of times she came by our store, and I just happened to not be there when you know when she was there. So Jada and I didn't actually meet until 2004. Uh, I got to go out to dinner with her and Will right before they became investors in Carol's daughter. Like we finally had our first face-to-face meeting. Uh, but yeah, she's she's remarkable. <laughs> She's yes, an amazing she is. person. She, is she amazing. really is. And so, yeah, and so are you, Lisa. I mean, you you inspire so many. You inspire me, and so many. I'm sure so many other women and mom entrepreneurs. Um, and we thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on MGM Radio. Um, thank you. Any last words or, or advice or thoughts before we wrap up? No, I I had. Uh, Lots of great questions, and and this was fun. And my husband was listening at the at the beginning of it. He he's at home in New York, and I'm in Tampa because I've been on HSN. And uh, he saw the oh, post on okay. Facebook, so he was listening when the person said, um, "How did you get your husband to put his money in?" <laughs> so he texted me and, and texted me, "Ooh, your husband put money in. Did you say thank you?" And I. <laughs> So that was wow. interesting. I, I don't think I've ever had my husband listening in on a, a radio interview before. Yay, so that was funny. <laughs> no, you did a great job, and you inspired me and so many other women. And we can't wait to meet you live on Saturday. She'll be there Saturday, April 9th at Dare to Aspire. Thank you. Thank you. Have a blessed day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Bye, everyone. Tomorrow we're going to be chatting with Karen Hatcher. She's made a million in sales with real estate. All right. Take, take care and have a blessed day, everyone. Bye.